0: There, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app and let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um I hope that it will help you on your garden journey. Uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place, and most of all, it's good for Mother Earth.
1: If something were to really go awry with the federal government's certified organic program, like if they started passing <laughs> laws for, like, you know, there was there was a big fight not to have like, um, what was it sludge included as a organic? Fertilizer, and so there were just certain things that, that really concerned us, and we thought, you know what, we're going to put our money and our energies into maintaining this third-party certification process to make sure that that doesn't go away. Um, if something really goes wrong with the, f- the federal government's program, not that I wouldn't certify organic, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have any problem with that. But that was just sort of the decision we made when we first started farming, based on just sort of, um, I don't know, probably just our principles. And, and so we just sort of had this relationship with them that we've maintained for the last 13 years at, at the different farms that I've had the pleasure of working at and with. And so, yeah, that's just what we've always done. Um, when we got to Indiana, when we moved here from the, the West, I considered the organic certification because Louisville is, um, you know, I, I thought it might be beneficial for us in a marketing sense that people would feel more comfortable with that. Most people hadn't heard of certified naturally grown, and so I would have done, I would have done both, and tried to educate along the way. Uh, when we when we looked into doing it, it was going to be like eleven hundred dollars a year, and I thought, well, it's probably not really worth it. And we do the certified naturally grown certification still.
0: Well, that was a lot of awesome information there, Larry. <laughs> So do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Um, Last season?
1: Yeah, what grew well this year, Michelle? What did we put on that? Pull up that form. Our lettuce. You know, and I'll I'll say something, too, um, in regards to what grew well. You know, when we got to this this piece of land, you know, the West Coast, generally speaking, and this isn't uh, necessarily the case everywhere you go, but they tend to have really nice soils in the West is my experience.
0: Oh, and we,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were in the the Snoqualmie Valley and, and I mean, that's some of the, probably some of the best soils in the world as far as my understanding goes. And so to, to move. And when we moved, we were, we farmed in, in South Dakota for, for about four years as well. I did at a, at a lifestyle center and we ended up having really good soils there. When we showed up here, our soils the first year i planted you know so in the in the early you know kind of now in marchish february march time we got all our brassicas and our early crops together we started them in flats and when i transplanted them out they literally turned purple and didn't grow another leaf and i thought that's not a good sign
0: why did that <laughs> uh, happen
1: well, it turns out that we were, were very low in potassium and we're extremely low in phosphorus. And so, phosphorus is uh, obviously a, a framing element hey. that helps the plant to frame. And so it just really literally didn't have enough to, to, for the plant to grow.
2: When we first moved here, we did a basic soil analysis. You know, we're, we're coming into this like we worked two farms very successfully. We grew food well. We know what we're doing. No problem. We did a basic soil analysis of the land here when we first got here six years ago. The pH was good. All the basic stuff looked good. So we thought we were good.
1: Well, so she says that, and I'll be honest, honestly, I probably got a soil test and looked at it and really had no idea what it was really saying. Uh. I, I didn't know how to read a soil test. And it, it dawned on me that that was probably the theme for most everyone I knew that's been farming, um, Most people don't know how to read a soil test. They take the recommendations and they make the applications based on recommendations. And, you know, largely they're just getting recommendations for how to grow a plant. So, what I mean by that is you're not remedying any problems in the soil imbalances or any problems like that. They're saying, Oh, you're going to grow corn or you're going to grow a vegetable garden. This is generally the amount of nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus you need to make that plant grow. And what we're looking at to do, what I became interested in. So when, when I, my plants didn't grow, I was like, okay, I've obviously got a, a learning curve to make here. And so I, Started to, I learned how to read a soil analysis. I started to understand what different um, elements did in the ground and what benefits they had to the plants and, and why we were having this problem. And so it was a, it was a really big learning curve. And it kind of – not that I think that soil analysis are the end-all be-all, but it certainly – it should be a tool in our toolbox to help us along the way. And so after that, I said, OK, so we have very low organic matter. We're about a 1.5 organic matter. If you know anything about biology, if you are not above a two, you really have your your biology on a starvation diet. Um, it's really difficult to build biological life in the soil when you're when you're low in organic matter, and so you you find yourself in a real dilemma. And so we found ourselves in this dilemma, and this really is what pushed me to kind of learn how to, what I would say, what, how to actually farm or how to garden. Um, before I was a hard worker and we did basic principles of what would be considered organic farming, you know, put compost down, you know, you add some nitrogen and, you know, you lime the soil periodically and you really, I would say you kind of shotgun approach it. Um, you kind of know the generals and you, you kind of just apply them liberally and, or, you know, as you feel you need them and you talk to people and they're like, Oh yeah, that's, that seems like a, a deficiency in this. So add a little boron or something. And, and so you, you kind of are just sort of winging it as it's, it's been my experience. And most gardeners I talk to or farmers that I talked to that tends to be where they come from. And so as I started learning things, I thought, okay, um, this is much more complex than I had ever really understood. I mean, soil biology, um, soil chemistry is a, is a very, very complex subject. And, um, you know, I often relate it to if you were a mayor and you had a city that was divided by a river and you needed to get, you know, commerce from one side of the river to the other, you know, families lived on that side, families lived on the other side. They need to have contact with one another and you want to build a bridge to get from one side of the river to the other. Would you want someone to build the bridge that didn't know basic physics? (laughs) The obvious answer to me was no. But yet one of the most important things we do in life, eat. We don't necessarily expect the farmers to to know how to do it the same way the bridge builder would know how to build a bridge. And that bothered me personally as a farmer. And so I, I decided I probably need to be a lot more educated and a lot more Um, thoughtful about my practices and what I'm doing. And so we decided to be veganic. We decided to be veganic um, based on some of those principles that um, I was telling you earlier that there's a lot more going on in the ground um, and in the process of getting things to nourish the ground than we realize. And so, you know, I don't, want to disparage or discourage anyone from gardening, I thought I have found that it is one of the most rewarding things to actually learn something like, you know, um, if you're going to eat nutritional yeast, you ought to know what growing medium they grew that yeast on. And if you're going to apply a biological to your soil, you probably ought to know what that biological was grown on or how it was developed. Um, and it really empowers you to make wise decisions. It, and it can seem scary at first, like it becomes challenging because there's not necessarily a lot of good choices out there. But I think that's what drives innovation and I think that's what drives us to do better and be better at what we want to do. Because I think generally, in, in my experiences, that's why people want to be organic farmers. They want to do something better than what is happening currently and so I don't I don't Well, I think disc- a
0: lot of it is what you're saying about we want to be eating healthy food. I generally call myself the healthy eater at the house. My husband's more the gardener cuz I want to eat healthy food. I don't want to eat these like weird cocktails like you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I and I think it is it can be discouraging. And I say that because, you know, when you you try to do something and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, well that isn't what I thought it was it can become discouraging. And what I'm trying to say is it's, it was very encouraging to me because it empowered me. It really empowered me to make better choices. And so, so what are some of
0: these better choices that you're making? Like, what are you finding that you're adding? Like, how are you adding organic matter besides the peanut meal, except for you had to give that up, right?
1: Right. Well, so, so what it, what it drove me to do is to ask a lot of questions of the people that, that are trying to do these things. And I think, when you ask them questions, they may not realize they're using something that wouldn't be ideal. And they a lot of the times they're willing to work with you. Or you find people that are a lot smarter than you are. And they've already encountered these problems and they have actually had come to solutions. So we have a gentleman in our particular area, and it took me a while to find this, but I, you know, I didn't give up. I kept searching. He grows compost. For lack of a better way to say it, he makes compost. And he was growing compost from his chicken manure that he had. He had chicken uh, productions for eggs and for chicken meat. And so he decided he was going to make this compost and started making it. Got involved with – he works with Elaine Ingham. If you're familiar with Elaine Ingham, she's – Yeah,
0: from the food soil webs. Isn't that what it is? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Food soil web. Yep. And so he got involved with her and they started doing, um, aerobic compost. Well, you know, he had a, a person come to him and say, you know, we would like to do a vegetative compost. And so he started looking into being able to do vegetative composting. And he found that in his area, he's in Kentucky, that there were a lot of fields that have been taken out of production and put back into native grasses. And so he started harvesting these native grasses to make compost when he would send his analysis into the soil food web to have them do the analysis about his biological counts and what was going on with his his compost it turned out that his highest biological numbers were coming from his vegetative compost and not from his manure based compost and so for us he had already solved the problem he was growing a vegetative growth uh, based compost from native grasses. He had another group of people that he was getting, they had put 80 acres into hemp and he was getting hemp from them and had a hemp compost. that was all vegetative growth. And so that was a, for us, that was huge. You know, we have biological numbers that are better than any other compost we've ever seen. So we have a great biological inoculant. We have, um, a vegetative based compost that is clean. It's, 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 very healthy sources of vegetative growth. There's no applications of anything being put on those fields. And so, you know, it, it, it drove me to find things like that.
0: Well, there is that great book about the Kentucky hemp, Kentucky hemp growers, isn't there?
1: Uh,
0: I'm fascinated by this. I'm confused about like, how do they make compost out of chicken manure anyway?
1: Well so, you know, it's just one of the sources of they're using also some vegetative growth obviously as well. But that'd be your nitrogen source and you have a, a carbon source and and so, you know, they just they put those things together and that's one way to get rid of the chicken manure. And that was his issue. He had all this chicken manure from his um you know, an effect I don't you know, I don't want to be negative about it, but they you know, it's a chicken cafe basically is what these things are. I don't know what, what they call them other than that. I'm sure they have a nicer name they call them. But uh, you know, you have all this chicken litter, and you got to do something with it. And most people spread it just on their fields. But um, you know, I think his his daughter had encouraged him to get involved with this Elaine him and in, in developing these ana- these aerobic compost piles. And so that's how he started dealing with his his chicken manure waste was to start composting it.
0: Okay, and then you're telling me the best source you have is hemp?
1: It actually, his numbers, when he has it sent into the, the soil food web, he sends it to the lab up in New York. Um, the reports he gets back, the, the best numbers he has is from the hemp. The second best numbers he has is from the native grasses. And then the, the third numbers he has is from his manure-based ones. But they're not cheap. And now this is the other thing. So, you know, you... you I know, but you have no are... idea.
0: Like, I'm like the biggest hemp advocate and I'm so <laughs> frustrated. And even though I guess they finally passed it, you can grow it here in Montana and you can grow mm-hmm. it places. The FDA still can... Like, I just... Uh, and plus, people always tell me I should eat hemp protein. Yeah, and now you're yeah. telling me not only that, it's the best compost.
1: Well, you know, it, it has, you know, every plant. And so when I say the best, you know, they have the highest numbers. Sure. Now, diversity, there's diversity. And then there's also different specific biologicals that we understand are nitrogen affixers or they may be. You now we have ones that can can mine phosphate and potassium. And so. You know, it's not just uh, a random. Uh, mostly, it is a random shot of just okay. Let's get as many different, the, the highest diversity that we can get, and that's good. That, that's one approach to biological agriculture. But then the, the other thing is, is you want to make sure that you have good numbers of the the biology that actually is going to um, help you with the stuff that you're maybe deficient in, or or that you want to to mine from the soil effectively. Um, something else to consider is there's, there's anaerobic, aerobic, and then there's also a biological, um, not a, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but, uh, there is a form of biology that can survive in both. And so, you know, there's, there's all these different biological, some are good, some are bad. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot that we don't know Uh, for all that we know. I mean, we, we know very, very little about biology and the amount of biology there is out there. Um, and we we really don't know much as far as how plants utilize all these different um, you know chemical reactions and and all that's going on in the process of taking insoluble nutrients solubilizing them, and then get them into a plant. I mean we do know quite a bit, and we can capitalize on the things we know. Obviously, you know um, how all the fungal hyphae is is a benefit and. And how fungi interacts with a plant, mycorrhizae fungi, and you know which, which families of mycorrhizae fungi work with which, which families of plants, and they have these symbiotic relationships, and how we can help facilitate those. And so, you know, all these things are important as our chemical structure correctly, um, you know, put together so that our our we have um, good air exchange in the ground, so that we have this this uh, movement, and how we can have the gas exchange of nitrogen in the air being affixed into the soils through these biological relationships and and then how that stuff all interacts with the plants. You know, these are all really intricate, complicated things that we think about. And so I'm going to come back to the beginning of how this conversation happened and say what grew best (laughs) on our farm this year after saying all that explanation (laughs) about how nothing worked on our farm at the beginning and what we've done in the education process we've went through to get our soil to effectively be able to produce food. Um, the, I think one of the best things that we had this year was um, probably our head lettuce. Um, and that might sound, I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like to people, but I really enjoy growing head lettuce. And we really struggled to grow a decent head of lettuce on this farm. We could do great with salad mixes, and we we have a proprietary blend of salad mix that we do. Um, but I really struggled with doing head lettuces. And a few years ago, we had a good bunch of head lettuce, but it was just it, it was inconsistent. And so this year, I think we have finally gotten the soil to a place that we were able to grow really nice head lettuce. I was very excited to have it on the in the CSA boxes and on the, at the farmer's market table. And it was just, it's just something we grow kind of unique, different varieties of things. Um, I grow a head lettuce called Samantha. It's a red Oak leaf. Um, and you can't find the seed at least I can't find the seed anywhere except for wild garden seed. I don't know if you're familiar with Frank Morton over at wild garden seed, No. but, uh, you know, he's probably one of the best seed developers that I've ever had the pleasure of talking to um, wild garden seed is based out of Oregon and, and, uh, Frank's been doing this for a long, long time. Well, and cool. he, Maybe uh, you
0: can connect me with him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know him personally. I just know of him and have talked to him on the phone, uh, on occasion. Huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he would definitely be somebody to interview cause he is, is a very talented seed grower. Um, he does a lot of development of seeds. Um, so he does a lot of development of lettuce seeds and, And um, he rescues a lot of old varieties that have gone out of production. And Samantha happens to be one that he's rescued. He didn't develop that one, I don't believe, but he rescued it. And it is a red oak leaf. It is just one of the most spectacular lettuces that I've ever had. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with oak leaf, but they're really frilly. And so they have a lot of texture. They have a bit of a spine like a romaine on the back. They're very crunchy um, and they're kind of soft lettuces at the same time they're not like a, it's not like a chicory not like a real like a frisee or something that's got a real bitter bite to it and it's like real coarse um, and so it just has it, it runs the gamut of like textures and coloration and and that sweetness that you want in lettuce and so it's just a it's a really nice lettuce and when we take it the farmer's market we always have the same experience people say, well, what's your favorite lettuce? I say, well, I like the Samantha head lettuce. It's my favorite. And they're like, look at it. They're like, what is that? I've never seen a lettuce like that. I'm like, it's an Oak leaf lettuce. It's a little different. You know, you don't usually see those at the grocery store. And so they'll try it. And it almost invariably, they're like, they come back next week and they're like, do you have more of that lettuce? And, uh, and so (laughs) it's always exciting to me to introduce those types of things to people because, you know, i'll walk back a little bit again here when i was on that farm for the first time and i said i'd never planted chicories the guy said hey can you go get the polo radicchio can you harvest that for me you know whatever we need this many heads and i looked at him and i said i would love to go harvest for you if you could just tell me what it is you know i've never even heard of what a polo radicchio is and so he has to take me over there show it to me explain to me everything i'm like okay great so i harvest it and i don't know if i've ever really have, have ever had it before or whatever you know it is in salad mixes, so I probably had had it before and didn't know it. Um, but there was just a lot of things like that on the farm that I had never even heard of, never knew they even existed. I, you know, We only know what's at the grocery store.
0: All right. Can so- I ask – like, can I back you up just and ask a couple of questions? Yeah. How many acres are you farming again?
1: Um, right now, currently, we are at about one and three-quarter acre, and we're trying to shrink that down to one and a half acres. And – are
0: you using like no-till practices? Or are you plowing it up with a tractor? Like, how are you doing that? How do you mix your compost and How do you do your field? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, let me let me let me say that I use a tractor.
0: Sure.
1: Okay. Um, in the fields, we use a particular implement. I have always been very conscious of soil structure and not trying to damage. Uh, the biology and the, and the fungal hyphae that's in the, in the soils, and so we use an implement called a reciprocating spader, and effectively it is a mechanical double dig. Um, it, it goes anywhere between ten to twelve inches deep, and it's basically shovels that shovel the ground that deep, and so it I... leaves a very large, a very large crumb structure, so we don't do as much damage to the ground.
0: That, I've and heard that is of those our... before. I talked to this farm on Long Island, uh, Young's Farm, and that's what they were talking about too.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the one we use is called a Chelli spader. You can look it up. It's from Chelli, Italy. Um, it's five feet wide, so it fits right on our bed system. And so we will work the beds as needed. We try, you know, we we try to be gentle on the soil um, with our tractors. We have a permanent bed system, and so the the walk paths are the wheel paths for the tractors. And we try to not ever drive in our beds. We try to be very careful about, um, you know, if we're when we're working cover crops or something that's on a like a broader scale, not just by bed, but for like a whole section, a whole acre or something like that. Um, We try to just always maintain driving on the same bed systems. Now, I say we we farm an acre and a half. We have six acres that we have kind of in what we call um, working. And so we have a very high rotation. So we'll have a lot of that land in cover crops. Um, And then we will rotate around in those cover crop fields. And so we have uh, a lot of soil building measures going on while we're doing the farming. And so, but yeah, so primary tillage is going to be the the chelly spader. And then we will come back with a very, as shallow as possible um, till to create a seed bed. Um, so we try to stay somewhere around, you know, two inches, give or take, um, to just create a shallow seed bed to to do as little um, damage to the soil as possible. Um, what we have moved to in our greenhouses is a broad fork and a um, Johnny sells a little tilther. And we've been tilting the beds. And so as far as applying the uh, the minerals, what we'll do is, or biologicals or minerals, a lot of the biologicals will be uh, liquidized. And so we spray those down with the boom sprayer. Um, and as far as the mineral or, or compost, we've been putting that down by hand. And so we will just fill up five, we, we mix it up as whatever we, we need. Um, and we will spread that by hand with five gallon buckets. Um, we are, we just bought a, a, um, a Gandy drop spreader this, this last fall And so we're going to try and see if we can speed that process up a little bit by using a drop spreader um, to apply those things in the future.
0: No, it's just the two of you, Michelle and you. Yeah,
1: mostly. I mean, every now and then we have someone come out and volunteer. But yeah, so my my goal when we started this farm was that to have a practical working model for a couple. And so we primarily try to keep it. We don't hire anybody. And, but we are very keen on education. And so we feel like it's part of our, our our mission is to educate people to be able to do this. And so we do have people come out to help us. Um, but most of that is an education process. And, and honestly, oftentimes it slows us down. It doesn't help yeah. us as much as it slows us down. Uh, I,
2: I do have um, two times a year that we do farm dinners also. We haven't had... Any children of our own, we love children, so we invite um, CSA members, different family members, uh, to come out, and I do a four-course meal using farm fresh ingredients, and that's a way that we get the community and families and children out here on the farm too, which we love to do. So we do that twice a year.
1: But answer to answer the question is, is yeah, primarily, basically, it's just me and Michelle who who run the farm.
0: Sure. Uh well that sounds like a lot of work like did, do you have like um I don't know well let's go to the next question what are you excited to try next year because we're already at like 80, 90, almost ninety minutes yeah um, what are you excited um, to try next year
2: I just want to add really quickly yeah we make sure go ahead. to take one day of rest we do no work on Saturday it's our Sabbath so one day a week we do no farming and that helps us to recoup for the other six days that we labor pretty hard. But, sorry, you can ask that next question again?
0: No, I'm glad you threw that in there.
2: Yeah.
0: I was wondering yeah. about your Sunday market. <clears throat> I was like, do these guys ever take a day off? But, yeah, Saturday, <laughs> got it.
1: So we, we keep a traditional uh, Sabbath, which would be from the Friday night to Saturday night. That's our day of rest. Um, so um, as far as what we're excited about next year, um. Yeah, so um what are we doing next year? What are we doing? I'm we really excited. A, we, a, we actually got a backhoe. do so, you want to say what's here?
2: We're we're adding fruit trees onto the farm, <laughs> which we've been wanting to do since the beginning of the farm 6 years ago, but there were so many issues with our soil, we thought it'd be better to wait until we got a handle on on that, and we feel that we're ready to take on the challenge of some fruit trees now. So, we have about 21 fruit trees coming to be planted this spring.
0: That's coincidental. My goal for this year on a much smaller scale is to incorporate more fruit. Like I planted raspberry beds last year because my raspberries died. And then I am bound and determined to plant some blueberries and make them successful. But we kind of have a small orchard, like 14 trees. So I can
2: totally understand that.
1: Yeah. So Michelle's excited about the fruit trees. This yeah, year.
2: and we're going to also try to do to run some underground irrigation. Uh, we are always trying to find time and ways to save time. And we spent many hours moving drip tape and um, hoses and connectors all around the field. And so we're going to work on getting some underground irrigation in place this year to save us a lot of time.
1: So we we bought a backhoe. That's why I was saying we bought the backhoe. We're gonna we're gonna try to put some systems in place to that are that are time saving. Um, and so you mentioned, yeah, it's a lot of work for two people. And I think a big part of making it work is to try to find very effective systems that that really are able to save your labor, and you can really focus on the things that are most important. Um, in the, in the farming process. And well, so I the-
0: tell Michelle, our backhoe is broke down. We're dealing with it. We got to go deal with the John Deere dealer. What are you going to use your backhoe for? For like, what kind of systems? Like, are you going to... Mike kind of built one of those pond type of things like Jean-Martin Fortier talks about in his book. Although I have a feeling our next step is going to be, it probably needs a plastic liner or something. What's going to keep the water in there? I don't know.
1: Clay. Um, so... <laughs> That's, um, yeah. So the backhoe has a couple of purposes. So we, when we plant trees, we use a method called, uh, um, the grandma white tree planting method. And we do a three foot by three foot by three foot hole. And we do a, a mineralization process through as we layer that back together and we plant the tree in that. So the backhoe will help us plant the trees a little easier than me digging that hole. And then we also will use it to, um, put the ditches in for the um the underground irrigation and also we're going to put in some tile drain this year we had some drain we have some drainage issues in the field and we had a had put some tile drain in last year and it made such a big difference to get that water um moving laterally uh, we sit on top of sandstone so water doesn't want to move down very well sandstone is a solid rock that doesn't is not permeable and so water has to move laterally in our fields primarily. And so to add some um, tile drain to get that water to move out of the field and get the the oxygen back into the ground as rapidly as possible. Um, So those are two or three things that we'll use the backhoe for this year that's going to, in my opinion, probably help us out quite a bit.
0: Sure. And like, what is like burying irrigation mean? Like putting those like wobbly things in or like you have like drip tape that's going under the swale yeah. Like what is it yeah
1: so what we'll do is we'll run a line out to the field so that we have higher pressure out in the field and we have uh. more volume of water out in the field and we'll have spigots um every hundred feet so that we can have you know when we attach the irrigation you know it's easier to move it so we can mow it will not have hoses running from our wash station all over the place out into the field everywhere it makes it difficult to mow and just manage the weeds and things like that around all these hoses you don't end up mowing up a hose or something like that and it just makes it easier you walk out to the field connect it right there at your headers and and it's all just sort of right there where you're at and you don't have to move hoses around so much and you just it's, just, it's just it. gonna make- I
0: feel your pain. I know how yeah. it goes.
2: It also helps a lot with winter farming because we have some areas of the field right now that if you want to irrig- irrigate during the winter months and it's a warm day, you irrigate, then it gets cold. You have to drain all the hoses again because you don't want them to freeze and burst. And that mitigates all that because it's underground. So you don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah. Excellent. All right. Yeah.
2: Well, what about something that
0: didn't work so well last season or the way you thought it was going to?
1: Well, we have struggled with beets um, the last couple of years. Um, and probably our biggest struggle is keeping them weeded. <laughs> um, you know, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of work, um, and there's only two of us, and they, they tend to struggle the last couple of years. We've struggled with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons was is we had them in a wet spot one year, and it just didn't seem to do well. The roots seemed to rot and they just didn't have a, a very good chance. And so we were obviously doing the tile drain to mitigate that. And then um, we are – we've gotten a little more um, – what would you say? We have acquired some new tools Um we're looking at getting some finger weeders, potentially. We have a little Alice Chalmers G tractor, and so I've been debating about whether to get finger weeders for that or one of those new walk-behind finger weeders. Have you seen those on, at Johnny's?
0: No, I haven't. I think
1: John martin has talked about them quite a bit as well. Uh, We're not on weed- that
0: kind of scale yet.
1: Yeah, well, the finger weeders, the ones that are at Johnny's, they're a walk by. It's kind of like a they it, Actually, it's very very much like the hoe, and it's just an in-row weeder. Um, and they're just little fingers that go in the rows and sweep gently between the plants or right up next to the plants and and, and in, whole, in in row weed. Um, and so some of those tools, I think, are, are going to be quite useful for us. But, yeah, the beets we struggle with. And the other thing I thought about doing this year that we've done in the past is transplanting them.
0: Well, that's opposed- what G. Martin Fortier said he does on – my show and i was like wait did you say you transplanted your beets and he's like yeah gives us three weeks on the season and we don't have to worry about things not germinating we don't have to worry about thinning we put them exactly where we want them
1: yeah yeah so we thought but and again there's manpower and all that transplanting as (laughs) well so we we kind of have weighed the direct seeding to the transplanting and so we're gonna we're gonna try some now do you mulch after you get the weeds out Um, we don't do much mulch. We use some black, um, like landscape fabric as a, as a mulch in some of our areas, like when our greenhouse for our tomatoes, we use the black landscape fabric. Um, peppers will do it. But as far as like beets and things like that, we've never really done like a, a natural mulch. It's been, you know, for the, the amount of land that we're doing and finding a source of mulch that I felt comfortable with, Mm-hmm. It's been very difficult. Sure. Um, we can sometimes get uh, tree trimmings when they, you know, they do the tree trimmings and they'll they'll uh, drop them in your yard. Um, we've gotten those before, and we can use those a little bit. But a lot of times, if you're putting those directly in the bed, if I come back and it's not a permanent raised bed or some sort of permanent no-till system, and you till that that wood into the ground, then it becomes a nitrogen. You know, it takes nitrogen to break down that that wood product, and so. Um you end up losing nitrogen. So I've been leery to use that directly on the beds themselves.
0: Okay, let's get to the root of things. Uh-huh. What's your least favorite activity you do in the gardeners? Is there something you gotta force yourself to get out there and do?
1: <laughs> Oddly enough, it's probably harvesting. <laughs>
2: Which is actually great, because the contrast is harvesting is my favorite, so it works
0: out fine. Excellent. I was just going to ask that. I totally understand, because harvesting, like picking a salad and harvesting, even Mike's mini farm are like two different things, and harvesting yeah. can be a chore.
1: It's quite, it can be, to me, it can be quite monotonous. Like, it just seems like, beat, beat, clean it off, put the twist tie around it or rubber band, however person does it. And I really, like I get bored, I guess. I don't know. But hoeing, which everyone would think is like totally miserable, is like my favorite thing to do on the farm. It's like meditation for me. (laughs) So, Michelle, then what's your least favorite
0: if harvesting's your favorite?
2: My least favorite thing is to move the irrigation around. I absolutely can't stand it. When he's like, go move that irrigation. (laughs) I'm like, no, not me. I don't want to do it. I don't like doing the irrigation. I love harvesting. I really like weeding too, actually. Um, I have lots of things I think about, listening to the birds. There's so many great things when you can clear your mind when you're doing both of them. So I like doing both.
0: Yeah, I can't actually do either one without a podcast in my ears. (laughs) 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 but that has been a big game changer. So I say a lot of times I've spent more time in the garden the last four years than I did in the first 21 Mike and I were married. Um, What's the best gardening advice you've ever received?
1: Well, you know, it seems maybe cliche at the moment, but bigger is not always better. Um, The first time I learned that, was with uh summer squash (laughs) you know summer squash will grow to be gargantuan but it's quite nasty (laughs) if you let it get bigger and and so uh totally
0: i like to harvest my zucchinis when they're like the size of a quarter that's what a summer squash is like a zucchini or something like that yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah so zucchini or you know um a yellow crook neck or something like that, and you know they get a real thick skin. If you let them get big, the seeds get totally tough. The the, the flesh of it gets like kind of spongy. It gets really nasty. But if you like you said, if you get a, a zucchini when it's you know less than eight inches long, it'll have a thin skin. It's tender. The seeds are tender. Everything about it's delicious. And so that was a real big bigger's not always better. But in modern like more recently, you know a lot of people grow their farms and they get more and more land in production and it becomes less and less, you know, it becomes more mechanized It you become less to, you're more detached sure. from yeah. the land.
2: You're a manager you, of people more than you yeah. are actually farming anymore.
1: Yeah. So you, you lose what I considered the, the essence of it. You know, I like to put my hands in the ground. I like to touch the stuff. I like to be, um, you know, I think if you get it down smaller and you can manage that small space better, you get higher quality, and, and I think this is really what we're looking for. And for me, I would like to see more people gardening, more people farming, and having this experience for themselves. And you know, the more people you have doing it, the less you need to produce. And that might sound uh, unpractical for someone who wants to make a living at it, but I just, for me, I just see it as one of those things that is such a great lesson book that everybody ought to have some experience of putting their hands in the dirt and really having that experience of being taught by nature.
2: Well, and it's a way of life, too. You know, so we want it to be, um, you know, living the agrarian lifestyle. We don't want it to consume us to such a degree um, that it takes away from that. So we've actually downsized over the years. And um, so bigger is not always better in many different ways. I think that's the biggest the best advice we've gotten over the years. I think
1: and, that's and,
0: great and, advice. I always tell people start small.
1: Yeah. A good friend of mine said the exact thing. He said it's <clears> a lot <throat> cheaper to make mistakes small than it is big.
0: Sure. All right, Michelle, how about you go first this time? Like, do you have a favorite tool that you like to use? If you had to move yes. and could only take one tool with you. What could you not live without?
2: Yeah. I actually get made fun of when I go into town because I always have my harvest knife on me. And, um, people often make comments with, what are you carrying a knife for? But I love Especially, the harvest It's knife. probably a it's, big one. <laughs> no, it's actually, you know, it's a smaller harvest knife. Oh. Um, it's just, I think people probably aren't used to seeing women walking around with a knife on their, their
0: on waistband. Yeah. But
2: anyway. Yeah. The, the, it's just a practical thing. You know, I use it all day for so many different things and, uh, So I, I think the harvest knife is the thing I use the most. And then for the flowers, you know, my flower clippers are, you you know, they're priceless. They make such a difference in the quality of the clip and it saves with your hand. I know the first year I didn't have them and I'm just using like scissors or my harvest knife and, you know, you really want a good set of clippers for your, for your flowers.
0: I can't agree more. My mom gave me a pair of Cutco pruners for Christmas last year, and I know that made a huge difference, and I can't even wait to see what it's going to do next year. I want to put, like, a mailbox down in my garden so my pruners are just always down there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I really like the Felco ones.
0: Yeah. Uh. Okay, how about you, Larry? What could you not live
1: without? Well... Probably well, you know the harvest knife was actually mine and she she stole it from me, but so I think the uh, probably the will hoe like I really am a big fan of the will hoe it saves me a lot of time walk paths are are quite uh hard to deal with with a regular hoe and and it's like a kind of a therapeutic thing for me, I think the will hoe it but if I was looking at it economically, I'd pick the spater. <laughs> Good to know. What's a
0: wheel hoe?
1: What's a wheel hoe? Okay. So a wheel hoe is a – it's basically a stirrup hoe that has a wheel in front of it and two handles that come off of that. And it allows you to basically do what a hoe would do with two hands. And they can come anywhere from 12 inches wide down to five inches I believe the smallest ones are. And you can just make really quick work of – hoeing with them and it's a lot less stringent on your your body
2: it's a way to use it as a walk behind instead of you know the way you have to use your your body kind of sideways when you're hoeing this um, allows for you to use both hands behind the hoe when you're using it so it's a lot easier to to use I do
0: think somebody told me about that and I was like I'm gonna get one of those for Mike he needs one of those it was yeah. uh
1: you know, I had one when I first started well the farm that I started on had one. And then um they're not really that cheap. Like if you get it from Johnny's Seeds or whatever, the the one they sell. It's like three hundred and fifty dollars or three hundred dollars mm. or something like that. It's not a cheap tool, but I'll tell you this. I, I didn't buy one because of that price tag and then I got one for a birthday present, I believe, um, from my wife. She knew I wanted one and she splurged and bought me one. It made such a big difference. I mean, I tell everybody it's worth every penny.
2: And you do get what you pay for because we have a friend that got one that was pretty inexpensive and it broke pretty quickly. And they
1: just don't work well.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and Johnny's is pretty, like, you know, you can count on their stuff. Okay, Michelle, we already talked about a favorite recipe. How about who's got a favorite internet resource? Where do you guys like to Uh surf on the web?
1: Johnny's? (laughs) Um... Probably are you familiar with advancing eco agriculture? I am
0: a little John. Bit. I just did an interview with him. I haven't posted it yet.
1: Oh my. So my listeners haven't
0: heard about it yet, but they will by the time they hear this.
1: Yeah, so well, then they'll know. it is the guy is, I mean such a wealth of information so grounded in my opinion. I think he's one of the most grounded thoughtful speakers that I've ever listened to the information that he shares is so scientifically grounded. And like, just, it just seems so solid to me. Um, and it has helped me understand agriculture, especially the biological side of agriculture far beyond I, I, that I would ever could have probably dug all that out on my own. It would have taken a long time. He is just a wonderful wealth of information so I recommend his podcast. I recommend his – his uh, he does webinars, and it's all free, and it's just wonderful information.
0: Excellent. How about you, Michelle, or is that the same one?
2: Um,
1: Actually,
2: I would say I, I have learned a lot from Florette um, with my flowers because I don't have a lot of experience with them, and she does put out some nice beginner yeah. – videos like when we were first doing our ranunculus and anemones I watched her stuff um also bear mountain farm they have some good uh youtube videos they're a flower farm in Oregon that I really like Um, yeah
0: Denise and Tony gets they were my uh like new years when I first started out like 2015 I think guests yeah they were like they were like you guys a two-parter because they went two hours see what happens when you have two guests on the phone (laughs)
2: Yeah, they're great. And I've, I've watched they a lot are. of their YouTube videos on ranunculus and anemones and soaking and all that. <laughs> you know, they're a little bit more detail-oriented flowers. And so we needed that information. And uh, I'm incorporating poppies and snapdragons dra- this year for the first time. I was going to aerobo- ask you
0: about snapdra- snapdragons.
2: yeah. The snapdragons, it's going to be my first time doing them. I have I seeded them into trays uh, the beginning of January. So they're under lights and they're ready to go out any day now into a greenhouse. So we'll see how they do. My understanding is, you know, the earlier you plant them, the more cold they go through, the, the big, bigger and better plants you're going to have. So we'll see how they do.
0: Ooh, good to know. I never heard that before. Okay, real quick. How about a favorite book?
2: Who's got a book? Um, I have to say uh, my favorite book is probably the Bible. Uh, we study the Bible a lot, so I'm sure Larry'd probably say the same. It's, we don't have a lot of free time. Um, so (laughs) when we do, that's typically what we do together is, is study
1: the Bible. There's a, a second book that I I would name. It's the book true education. Um, it's by a, a lady named Ellen G white. She, um, she wrote this book about how ag- agriculture and education should be fundamentally entwined. And so, you know, I, I think that is, um, I'm going to have really... to check
0: that out because I believe that too. I think every school yeah. should have a garden, you know, as a teacher, it just kills me. Kids need more time outside. They need to know. There's so many lessons. It's just, okay. We got to hurry. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're skipping business advice. How about my final question? Here we go. Ready? It's a doozy. If there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about? A project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you guys feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? And sometimes I feel like I know what you guys are going to say. And then I'm like, I don't know. They might have a completely different answer.
2: Yeah, it kind of goes along with what we just mentioned with that book. We really feel it's important to teach children about agriculture and the lifestyle of um, the agrarian lifestyle. You know, long days inside, sitting down in classrooms, um, a lot of um, artificial lighting, uh, artificial environments, uh, food that's got a lot of artificial additives, it affects our children in the way that they think. And, you know, we really see kind of an epidemic in a way of childhood diseases, um, whether it be like diabetes or autism or, you know, OCD, ACD or, um, you know, like uh, food Attention allergies.
0: Attention deficit hyperactivity uh, disorder. Yes. All-
2: Types of things, and a lot of them are preventable. Yes. And um, we think that there should be in every school, there should be a garden, and part of the education for children should be how to learn to grow food. And in that education, they're going to be experiencing fresh air and sunlight, and they're going to be experiencing nutrition. Um, they're going to be experiencing these principles of health that are really important for our you know the growth and health of their minds and their bodies and so that's kind of where our passion lies um as much as much as we can we try to educate mothers and fathers and and people to really try to get their children involved in agriculture in some way
1: so do we have time for me to answer a different way we do absolutely go ahead larry okay so I was thinking about this question. And I think it's a really important question as well. Um, and I agree with everything that Michelle said, um, education and using the garden as, a, as an education tool. But specifically to the greener world part, I think that if we could get people to understand the impact that agriculture has on our planet, and even just as far as a, a carbon sequestration, if we would just farm differently if we could understand how much we could change some of that just through our agricultural practices and that when we do that the the disease problems that we have like most of the diseases in the world that we have are associated they're self-inflicted meaning their dietary choices their sedentary lifestyle choices it's it's all these things that go along with that. But one of the things we don't think about is that our food is fundamentally deprived of nourishment. And if we had plants, most plants function at about a 30 to 40% photosynthetic level. And if we were able to grow plants that were functioning even just above 60%, you know, I don't even want to talk about what could happen to food if we were, if you get somewhere like 90 to a hundred percent photosynthetic functionality. But We end up with foods that are higher in the resveratrols, all the the secondary metabolites, and we could truly see our food nourishing us in a way that would heal us from a lot of these things that we're dealing with on a global scale. I think reimagining what agriculture can be and what our part in that is to see it happen is probably – You know, I don't think we've even begun to tap the genetic potential of what food can be. And if we were moving in those directions, I think we would see um, the world be a much greener, healthier place for us and our children and everyone, really.
0: Larry, that was so eloquent. I know my listeners are going to love every minute of this extremely long interview, but... Since there's two of you, it's going to get broken to two pieces anyway, because I could never upload a file this big. Um, So it's actually going to work out great. And we're right at... um, Because my show gets played on Progressive Radio Network on Monday nights, and Mm -hmm. it has to be at least 53 minutes, and we're going to get right two shows, right? And they can't be more than 58 minutes. So we are right in there. You're each going to get a Monday, uh, although you will kind of be together. But um, we've got Michelle's great pre-chat and just thank you guys so much for sharing these golden seeds. We have so much in common and uh, tell everybody
2: how to connect with you and where to get your website. Yeah, so we our website is Eastward like the direction EastwardGardens.com and we are on Instagram and you can find us just at Eastward Gardens under the Instagram as well. And yeah, we'd love to connect with everybody out
0: there. Thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. And I'm just so glad, Michelle, we kept going. This could not have been a better interview. It's going to awesome. be like 47 pages long, <laughs> <laughs> 21,000 characters. Uh, and that's what I got down while you were talking. Um, okay, well, I'm hanging up the recorder anyway. But okay. Michelle, before we go. Get your copy of the organic Oasis guidebook available today from Amazon for just twenty six ninety five, and it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic Oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just, um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth hey there green future growers would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards if so we would love it if you would share the organic gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today thanks again for listening and remember grow local